Welcome to the Traffic Masters Show. Each week, Traffic Masters explores the lifeblood of your business, generating traffic, turning visitors into leads, and conversion strategies. Mastering traffic and conversion allows you to grow a business you love and live the life of your dreams. Welcome to the show. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Traffic Masters here on Blog Talk Radio. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Graves, the Dean and Founder of Directions University at DirectionsUniversity.com and the Co-Founder of Divisio, the all-new affiliate network for people in all niches. We've got another great show lined up for you guys today. We have my co-host, the Associate Dean of DU and my Co-Founder in Divisio, Jack Humphrey. Hello, Jack. Hello. How's my voice you sound today? I'm a little better. Way little better. better. <laughs> There's still a little something in there, but better? yeah, I'm on the upswing. Yeah. Much. Oh, that's great. I'm not a zombie anymore. That's great news. Okay, so are you the kind of person that when you're sick you want to be left alone or you want somebody to, like, pamper you? Which are you? Oh, no, he wants to be left alone big time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Media blackout, full blackout, just leave me alone. <laughs> Drop off the tea and the orange juice and close the door? Yes, and okay. don't let any light in or there will be a lot of hissing and growling. Okay, got it, got it, okay. <laughs> That, yeah. All right, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Tips for staying alive around here when Jack is sick. Exactly. Right, Just not good to know. <laughs> well, we probably ought to introduce our guest. I hear him laughing back there somewhere. So I'll, yeah. I'll give you a little introduction and we'll hit the road here today. So, welcome oh. everybody to Traffic Masters. We have today Christopher Lowry. And his first business was in 2001 at the age of 20 uh, with a small firm doing title examination for local real estate attorneys in Georgia. When 9-11 hit, he was forced to close and went on as an industrial electrician in Savannah, Georgia. In 2005, Christopher joined the U.S. Army and attended the Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center. Activities following this are largely classified. I love classified activities. That will be the first question I ask you all about. Uh, but include deployment in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. After his tour in Afghanistan, Christopher was awarded the Combat Action Badge, the Army Commendation Medal, and inscription on the Director's Cup. He is a Commandant's List awardee and graduate of the Hawaii Warrior Leader Courses course, as well as many other military schools. Uh, and we've got his websites and other stuff here. I'm going to talk to Christopher about all of this so I can end the introduction and say, welcome, Christopher. Well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. How are we doing today? Is it Christopher or Chris? Either's fine. Chris is fine. Okay, let's do that. And can you hear me All right, okay? Cool. hear you great. Oh, good. hear you great. Well, thank you so much for being here today. you got a lot to talk about, I can tell, just by, by uh, people's <laughs> intros. I can tell the depth that we could go to today, so... Uh, we like to start off every week, um, the same with everyone, what gets you fired up to get out of bed every day? What got you fired up to be uh, alive and well today? Oh, now, today is, a, today is an especially interesting day, so let's, let's go with something <laughs> that involves fewer doctors and hospitals. I've actually got an appointment right after this, but uh, as a rule, day-to-day, okay. it's, 
it's my family and making sure that I've got, you know, the, got the roof over the head, got the kids fed. And uh, that's one of the reasons I, that I'm an entrepreneur now. I, I promised my, my wife I'd stop letting people shoot at me. So got out of the Army and went into business for myself. Now I do insurance. Nice. Nice and much safer. Well, is it safer in these crazy times? <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> the, first, uh, the first year I was doing insurance, I got met at the door with a revolver more than once. <laughs> just out knocking on doors. So yeah, it was it was surprising how often somebody would come to the door with a gun and say, "We don't want none." We'd be like, "All right, y'all have a nice day." Someone's <laughs> like uh, handle... being a tax collector in the 1800s, huh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I now my uh, business model does not involve any kind of door knock, cold calling. I've decided that that is pretty much a. Uh, a, a dead medium. There's just not a, a good margin in it. Yeah. Well, it's safer. Safer to stay behind our computer screens. <laughs> it is. Um, but I've, I tell you the truth, uh, being, being confronted with a gun from time to time, not such a big deal. I mean, I'm a combat veteran. It's, it's not a new experience and not one that I'm entirely uncomfortable with. I've got the training. I've got the background. But... What I've really discovered about door knocking and going one one house at a time like that uh, is it's just not effective. It's much, much more effective to be involved in leads groups and chambers of commerce and doing charity events and anything where I can go and I can do something and simultaneously be exposed to a large number of people. Yes, you're talking my language now. Actually, we're writing a book on that now. It's called The Leverage Black Book. And you're talking about leverage, which is music to our ears. And I'm sure yours, too, <laughs> since you figured that out. And now you uh, are probably a lot more efficient at reaching your audience. Absolutely. I, it, it, it's wonderful, too, because my, my work is efficient enough now that outside of the regular uh, health insurance season, you know, with the Affordable Care Act, we have a we have a season for health insurance now, and that, that is my primary niche. Um, so I'm, I'm busy as a squirrel with a pineapple from the beginning of November to the end of January. But on February 1st, I can take a nap in the afternoon with one of my kids if I want to. I can hang out and watch cartoons in the morning and, and start late if I want to to make sure I get to sit down and have breakfast with the, with the family, anything like that, um, which has just been an absolute boon. And it makes my working life much happier as well. Yes. Uh, that's more music to our ears. Having a lifestyle, the business really isn't worth much if you don't have a a lifestyle to go with it. If you were working like that squirrel all year round like that, there would probably be some other things manifesting in your life, like uh, really serious doctor visits and your family not being happy with you and you not being happy with yourself. And <laughs> Sounds like you yep. are a man of balance. <laughs> I try. Um, I actually I wrote a uh, I wrote a paper recently, just a just a little blurb of a paper for a philosophy class, where I asked the question, why is it that in American society today, when a person speaks of the word balance in sort of a spiritual sense or a lifestyle sense, we automatically our brains automatically go to some sort of Eastern mysticism, Taoism, Buddhism, something like that. Why can't it be a part of our own culture? Uh, more readily than it is. 
and that that's been an interesting topic lately. That, that is really strange, Gina. I hope you're uh, hope you're hearing this. Gina's been watching me write the book, uh, and she's helping uh, a lot in the in the. I am book. listening. And we're talking about this a lot, and here comes a guest talking just about it, almost as if it was designed. And of course, it wasn't because we don't design anything on Traffic <laughs> Masters. But wow, that's uh, pretty pretty weird. That little non coincidence there. Yeah, I think the uh, you know I've got a I don't know if it's a chapter if it's going to be a piece of a chapter. It's probably going to end up being a chapter, somewhat of a rant right now, and I don't like it to be a rant, so it'll have to be adjusted, but. On the topic of this stupid culture that America has built around work and the work ethic, and just about everybody's caught up in this really big conspiracy. It's not really a conspiracy on the part of the people who pass around memes on Facebook that's basically the equivalent of the 1970s cat poster hanging on the wall saying, hang in there, but uh, it's more around... You know, all this success, hard work for the sake of itself, BS that people have in this country is crazy, and people laud it. I mean, they're just like, oh, I, w- I did a 17-hour workday yesterday, and they're proud of it. They're not coming on to get help from us uh, to figure out how that could not ever happen again, uh, or at least happens by design. They're actually wanting us to pat them on the back when they say that. And then every single inspirational speaker out there from Tony Robbins to everywhere else, gets clipped. It doesn't mean that they mean this completely, but on the Internet, a meme can only be about ten words. And the ten words that people choose all the time are something like, nothing comes without a lot of hard work. You've got to hang in there. You've got to have perseverance, and you've got to sweat and sacrifice and blah, blah, blah. And it's totally not true. None of it's true. It's completely untrue. It's a big, fat lie, probably one of the biggest fallacies that the American dream has ever had contained within it. And uh, nobody's talking about that. Just nobody – well, you are. You wrote a paper a little bit about that kind of thing, but it's really kind of strange. So maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit because it is a topic near and dear, obviously, to our hearts. Um, What do you think about that? Is is it – is it a winning combination? Is it really and truly what made America great? Or is it just a bunch of BS that we tell each other over and over without even trying to figure out what it means? Well, to the point, it is part of what made America great. Um, but as much as I'm a firm believer in the work, in an actual work ethic, uh, the, one of the problems with that 17-hour day you mentioned, I've worked a lot of 17-hour days. I really have. Um, and I've known people who worked a lot of 17-hour days, but there's a big difference between doing busy work and shuffling papers for 17 hours and feeling like you've accomplished something. There are professions in which the occasional 17-hour day is is necessary. Um, as a soldier, Agreed. I've done. Uh, as a soldier, I've spent uh, I spent one week, um, an entire week so wrapped up in in the mission. But this was, you got to understand, this was deployed into an active war zone under fire. But we were so wrapped up in the mission for a solid week that, I mean, 72 hours without sleep, never changed my socks, same pair of boots. And at the end of the day, the mission was successful, lives were saved, and my feet were in terrible shape and I was exhausted and 
I had to go back and <laughs> gorge myself on fatty food and fall asleep for another three days. But it's something, it's something where that's not the norm that, that occurs. And as long as the work ethic is solid enough that a person can understand when it is necessary to go beyond and burn that extra oil and, and get the job done, that's very different than just punching in at 9 o'clock in the morning and then saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to keep working until 9 o'clock at night and I'm just going to get it done, get it done, get it done. Now, yeah. if you're like an ER, an ER doctor, an ER nurse, a firefighter, a policeman, um, that's similar. That's, that's very similar to being deployed into the hot zone. Uh, it's, it's a little easier to go home at the end of a very long day, but it, it's still a case where lives are on the line, people are being saved, the work matters. But if you're designing ad copy for a newspaper or you're creating the next uh, Pepsi commercial, then your 17-hour day is, is just it's, it's lip service to a, to a bad ideal. And you're sacrificing too much for it. Agreed. Um, yeah, I also I also put professional athletes in there. There's no way around. You can't think your way completely to an Olympic gold medal. The majority right. of that has to be a lot of hard work, right? And uh, it, but yeah, it's, as long as the 17-hour day that you end up doing once in a while is the thing that you were put on this earth to do, and nobody else could possibly do it. And it is your thing, and your thing alone when you're not in the service industry or you're not, you know, putting out a fire. You can't take a break or outsource what you're doing when you're putting a building out <laughs> or, you know, putting out a fire in the Middle East or any of that. But when you're in the kind of businesses that people who are, are you know, listening to traffic masters and, and you know, very few people are, are – they probably have been in your business before of, of being on mission and having to just go through it. I can't imagine that you can just raise your hand on the battlefield and say, hey, guys, this has gone over my four hours. We need a 10-minute break here. <laughs> you know, so – but, yeah, I see a lot of business people saying that. And the thing is, it's not even fair to them. I, I pick on Mark Cuban. Uh, he got put into a meme, and it's not even his fault. Uh, he said something like, "Work like there's somebody working 24 hours to steal your money or your or your business away from you," and uh, and I'm kind of ripping on that, and I rip even on Colin Powell. I love Colin Powell, but he said something about the work ethic and perfection and everything. And the thing is, both of those guys would admit if you gave them enough room and took them out of the little picture meme thing that we pass around on social, they would admit to the fact that leverage played a huge part and how they both got to where they are today, that it wasn't just work. I mean, if, if work was all it was, there'd be a lot more people who are millionaires right now who work their butts off. I mean, they work, work, work. If it was only work, right. well, we'd have a lot more millionaires and probably wouldn't be in the 1%. It would be more like 5 or 10 or 15% would be in that bracket uh, instead of 1%. So, yeah, it's an interesting concept. It's it's nice to talk leverage. It's nice to be able to do that during the time that I'm writing so much about it, and then here you come. So thanks. <laughs> what are some examples of leverage that you use in your business now, other than uh, you know standing on stages with already made audiences like Chambers of Commerce and things like that? What are some others? I, I, I have a sense that you're a leveragist. So I, uh, one of my organizations is called the Iron Oak Grove, and I'll confess it's in its infancy now. And, but it's something that I'm building off of uh, learning from another little project called the Range Box. So 
to, to explain what the Iron Oak Grove is, let me start with the range box. I put together this thing. I've got a trailer full of airsoft guns. They're you know, toy guns. But they're realistic military training replicas that I used to train my soldiers when I was still active duty. When I got out of the Army, I've got, you know, a hundred of these ridiculous toy guns and nothing else to do with them. I said, I'll start a business on them. So the range box, I took them all and I put them in a trailer and I customized the trailer so it's a nice little mobile shop. And um, I've, I've actually put that business on the back burner for other stuff now. But originally what I did is I would take it and I would go to gun shows and churches, uh, Boy Scout groups, um, and charity events, and I would set up a little toy shooting range and teach basic rifle safety and marksmanship, um, especially with the, the Boy Scouts. We used to do the praise the Lord and pass the ammunition Bible study gun safety. <laughs> so I had a lot of fun doing that. But before I put that on the back burner, I had opened my insurance business. And I found pretty quickly that just hanging around at places like that, I was meeting a lot of people that I could sell insurance to. And then I got into the charity piece, and I set up the range box at a few different charity events and just donated all the proceeds from, from the little shooting gallery to the individual charities. But as a side effect, I sold a lot of insurance. And it wasn't that I was saying, hey, come over here and pay me five bucks and play, and by the way, let me talk to you about insurance. I just I had my card out there, and I would just chit chat with. And it's amazing how often, when you're when you're speaking to someone, they will they will allow a conversation to drift into your sphere of influence. So, I took that idea and kind of ran with it, and sort of building the Iron Oak Grove. Um, and IOG is all about bringing together people who are professional networkers, network marketers, salesmen. Um, anybody whose job can be improved by the kind of leverage you're talking about. And ultimately, my objective with it is to have a long list of professional salesmen and networkers like that who are ready to be on call to take, you know, a week or two notice and say, hey, we've got uh, such and such a charity is doing a vendor event and they need volunteers. If you're willing to volunteer, you're welcome to bring your collateral, pass out business cards as long as you're working. You know, come on out, do some free work, help these people do what they do, help these people help other people. And then not only do you get to meet a bunch of people who may or may not be interested in your product, but all of a sudden you're not, I'm not Chris selling somebody insurance. I'm Chris, that guy that cares about that thing you care about who happens to sell that product you need. Um. So nice. that is all about all about creating a very much a win-win scenario because I'm a, I, I disdain charity as a direct means of, of helping people because when it's just pure charity, it's the, feed, the give a man a fish versus feed a man versus, versus teach a man to fish. I can feed a man and keep him alive for the day, or I can teach him a trade. And now I have a man who will feed himself. I have a man who is a, a valuable business partner to me, so I can profit as well. And the more I profit, the more I can help other people to do that as well. So the, the motto of the Iron Oak Grove is, I will grow and be grown by. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I mean, you're touching on everything Jack, today. Jack, can it's I jump like in for plant. one second? 
Yeah, I figured you'd want to. Go for it. <laughs> I, I just wanted to give another example of that brilliance that Chris just explained that he's using. You know, a perfect example of this, Chris, I really love eagles. There happens to be an eagle's nest about a mile from my house. In fact, where I live today has been literally because the eagle led me to my condo. And here's how that relates. The eagle's nest that's a mile from me has a live stream that airs 24-7, 365 days of the year. It's been up for several years. It's been viewed by over 43 million people now. Very, very popular live stream. In the lower right-hand corner, you simply see Dick Pritchett Real Estate. Well, when they first started live streaming, it was a small real estate agency. They had one office. Just because of the exposure that that brought to Dick Pritchett Real Estate, they now have multiple offices. I think they're up to 10 or 12 now and a complete empire as a result of them caring enough about eagles to live stream it to the world. That's brilliant. Isn't it? <laughs> that's that's absolutely awesome. So when I teach this, what I say to my students and now to our listeners is you want to find a way to harmonize all of your passions so that you're getting more leverage from it. Your passion for guns, your passion for insurance. Bring them together and voila, there you go. Yeah, it's and it's been a boon to me. I mean, it, it means that my busy season feeds me, and for the rest of the year, I can work instead of trying to keep the wolf from the door. I can work on building another business. Um, I'm I'm a serial hobbyist of an entrepreneur. I open businesses and get rid of them and play with them and see what works and see what doesn't and try to teach lessons to other people in that regard. Um, and like on the insurance side, I never hire insurance agents. I'll, I'll help people get a license and you know I'll, I'll take a little piece of their first year of business and then boom, they have their own business and they've had a mentor for the first year. Um, because I don't, I don't need to get rich off other people working like that. I can, I could set them off and put them in the right direction, and they might refer me more business later. They might never, ever talk to me again, but at the end of the day, I've made somebody better, and that works for me. Yeah. I just I, I, I love uh, the, the discussion because it touched just about on absolutely everything. So one of the things I, I – uh, have going on. I'm, I kind of have a bunch of different things as well, and one of them is Brick Road Media, and we worked uh, almost in the beginning primarily with local businesses and trying to figure out what they needed. Uh, they were still trying to figure out the internet stuff, mostly weren't taking anything seriously. Nowadays, most businesses finally do. It's 2016, but when we started, uh, you know, it was like selling something to somebody who didn't know they needed what we were selling. They just didn't. We're a local business. And how are we going to do content? I would tell them, you know, you need content. Well, I'm an insurance agent. I'm a lawyer. I'm a, you know, I'm in what I call one of the hard services, which is just you don't talk about it until you need it. You don't look for it right. until the, you know, you don't sit around at the coffee shop talking about insurance unless Obamacare passes <laughs> and then people are talking about the political stuff. But, uh, you know, which is 
probably been a boon for uh, people around the insurance industry just because it's on, uh, you know, it's actually being talked about. But, but people are people, right? People need stuff, and you got to have something to talk about. And, you know, a lot of times I'd see people who had businesses that were just miserable because they – they treated the business like it was completely separate, and they didn't want to bring up what they do for a living uh, to people, even though they knew they were talking to somebody that probably could really use their services, like maybe right now. And then that's when they would bring it up. That's when they'd say, well, I happen to be. And they would never connect the two, and you connected you know, life and passion and interests and things like that with people who eventually are going to need your stuff. But you don't have to talk about it all the time because it is really quite boring to talk about some of the – Things. I mean, plumbers just don't strike up very good conversations uh, around PVC pipe and, you know, soldering and, <laughs> and toilet right. bowl, uh care and stuff. You just don't. That's just not a thing you do. So you found a perfect way to one of, of any numbers that just happened to be around your passions. And that's a really great example for everybody um, that a lot of marketing could and should be done without actually – trying to sound like an advertisement every time you open your mouth or uh, type something into your laptop to go out on social media and things. Oh, you know, one of the, just as a side effect or maybe a symptom of the project, the, one of the beautiful things about that kind of leverage marketing and network marketing is, aside from some business cards, a little collateral here and there, a pamphlet or two, it doesn't cost any money. It didn't cost me anything to show up and, and do some work and take care of some people. And if I happen to make a profit off of it, so much the better. And as long as I can profit enough that it allows me to do more of it, then my profit grows exponentially. And the amount of work I can do also increases. And that's the whole grow and be grown by theory is the more I make other people make me better, the more people I can better. Yeah. Well, and it's also anti-marketing, right? And a lot of people who become entrepreneurial don't necessarily do it because they love the the car salesmanish part of it that they imagine that goes with being a successful entrepreneur in any any industry, right? They, they there's a lot of people who are entrepreneurial to a point, and then they figure beyond that point is a bunch of yucky marketing stuff that I don't want to do. I know it comes with it, and I'll just deal with that when I get to it which is why a lot of people work on their logos for like five weeks in a row and, <laughs> you know, they'll do anything to get out of that and stay out of that, uh, that imagined world beyond that boundary. But really, there's so much anti-marketing going on nowadays that there's so many examples of it. It's really, you know, the, like uh, somebody who is, came from the marketing world and they were always dealing with budgets and they always ran paid ads and magazines, newspapers, everywhere else. They would always do uh, trainings and books and courses and things that say know your audience, know who you're going after. The, the biggest reason for knowing that from the marketing community is so you don't waste advertising money, <laughs> spending money to get right. in front of the wrong audience. But if you're Dick Pritchett Real Estate, well, those 48, 48 million views, m the vast majority of those people – don't live anywhere near his area where he sells real estate. So how in the world could that possibly help him? Well, it made him world-renowned so that he could get attention wherever he went on a local basis 
that any local who is looking for real estate, he's number one in search. He's all over the place in social. He's everywhere that people look that are relevant to him uh, because of that global recognition. So and remember, this thinking, area, Jack, this area is snowbirds, right? We have so many yeah. people that are here for three to four months out of the year. And the real estate agents in this area are who they talk to to find places for three to four months out of the year. Most of the business for realtors around here takes place from people outside the area, not from people inside the area. I don't know if he knew that and was brilliant enough to set it up that way or if it happened by accident. But boy, all of you listening, you now know this on purpose. Set it up that way. <laughs> See, so if you get in front of an audience, now. yeah, sorry, exactly. I mean, not everybody is going to be in your area or or need insurance right now, but they're going to remember an interesting discussion one day with a guy. What was that? And they might, you know what they're going to remember about this conversation and the URL, if they're going to do a search for you, it's going to be around the charity work. It's going to be around the, the oak thing more than insurance. They'll never, ever remember your URL, which we'll give out today, but they're not going to remember that as readily as the story that impacted them emotionally about you. So they're going to find you, even from this show, if they forget and they have to go look it up, they're going to start using keywords related to the passion that you had for nonprofits and charity work and things like that. 99% of the time before they'll ever remember the URL to directly to your insurance services. Do you agree? Agreed, absolutely. And I was going to say the other thing, what we're doing right now, talking about what makes success and sharing it, not not hoarding it like some precious secret, um, so that we're reaching out to other people and helping them to be prepared to be successful similarly. That, uh, I think, is one of the most valuable things that entrepreneurs or anybody in business who doesn't, doesn't even own their own business. It's one of the most valuable things that we as humans can do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Internet really screwed us up, didn't it? When people first in any industry that was out there where we hoarded information, and traditionally offline, you know, you'd have to go and buy a list of things, and somebody would have the list, and you didn't have the list, and there's no way to go get it. It wasn't published anywhere. You had to go buy it a list of leads, customers, people who live in a certain zip code. You know, there were all these multi-billion dollar, you know, industries and just keeping information. And then the Internet came along and made it all free and continues to this day where in every industry, if there's somebody charging for something, there's somebody out there blogging about it for free or on a radio show just giving it away. And it really made us all adjust. I mean, the, the entire world's economy has had to completely do a 180 on information, and uh, now it's all about value. It's all about, well, I know that this dude gives it away for free, but I, I don't like the way it's delivered or whatever else, and it's not value-added and all of that. We've really had to make a, a, a switch, and we're doing quite well at it, I think. But we're in a free information economy where we can also charge where the information is really crucial, the advice, the coaching, the consulting, whatever it might be, the value-add on top of the free information of a list of things is is what drives that information-based economy now. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, 
you talk about the value of things. I've always been a fan of the expression, I'm too broke to buy cheap, which kind of goes back to what you're talking about. Um, you know, there, there may be a, a screwdriver that's a couple of bucks that might get the job done when I've got a little home project, but I know I'm going to use a screwdriver again. I might as well spend 12 bucks and get one that's got a lifetime warranty and has made a better material, so on and so forth. So that's, you know, that's part of what's going to drive people to pay for what they could otherwise get for free is that quality that, uh, at a minimum, that perceived quality, that perceived value is just hard to ignore. Yeah. Plus, life is only about 80 or 90 years if you're lucky, and time is what we sell. Uh, time is quite often the value add. I've been through this. I can get you through what you're going to take two years to do. I can get you through that in six months as your coach or something like that. You know, that is valuable, right? right? <laughs> I don't want to spend two years of my life. If you can teach me in, to get this accomplished in six months or uh, shorter or a little bit longer, I'm all ears. So those kinds of things are real good leverage points, and that's where we're at with the, with information, online, offline. So when it comes to that, do you do anything you know, special on the web uh, for, for traffic or getting attention or anything like that? Is it all through uh, the nonprofits um, and then the insurance just comes up? Or, or how, do you, how do you get attention on the web if you do it at all? Uh, no, in fairness, um, with, with the health insurance stuff, I uh, discovered Facebook marketing, and it was just explosive for me. Um, my first year doing... Affordable Care Act, uh, the Obamacare health insurance, I ran ads on Facebook, and that was basically, that was all I did. And it wasn't all I did because I was lazy. I, I bested it out, and I, don't know, I spent maybe maybe 100 or $150 on Facebook ads for my health insurance business. And before I knew it, I had so much business coming in, just, just my phone ringing, that I, I was basically just Branded at my desk in the basement of my pajamas for 90 days. It was uh, it was pretty hectic. It was pretty amazing, and and it definitely took care of uh, took care of the business basically for the year. So that was yeah. Yeah, I bought a little advertising there, and you talk about a great return on the money. And how much time did you spend on Facebook itself, just being a user of it before you, uh, or during or after you did this? Was it significant? No, I was actually pretty resistant to Facebook originally. Um, it just, from a soldier's perspective, it's what we call bad operational security or bad information security. Um, of course, my operational security is not quite the same concern now that it used to be. But what happened, I had a, I had a baby right before I deployed to Afghanistan. So I got myself a Facebook account basically just so I could get uh, baby pictures while I was deployed. And... Then, you know, after I got out of the Army, I once, once I got back from Afghanistan, I didn't really touch Facebook much at all. Uh, and then after I got out and went into business for myself, I kind of got, kind of dug into it and started really examining what I could do with it because I heard somewhere that it was an effective marketing platform. Um, so, I, you know, I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and read a bunch of articles, a bunch of free stuff. <laughs> Consumed a pile of yeah. free information, and kind of taught myself how to how to get in there and and brand a product. Um, and I, I'm perfectly honest, Obamacare and Georgia.com is 
is pretty poor or was pretty poorly branded to begin with. I I didn't give any thought to the length of the URL. Um, that's that was a major stumbling block. It's it's a ridiculously long and cumbersome URL. So nobody ever goes to Obamacare dot Instead, they click on a link on Facebook that's one of those little clipped up links that's you know five or six syllables and has a picture next to it. Um, and that's you know that's the kind of stuff lessons learned. I, I wouldn't have even thought about it before I yeah before I found the need to study that uh, information. Well, it's uh, one of the things I describe um, when I'm talking about leverage is you know it's, Facebook is there, is a big pond or a big body of water that everybody's trying to swim across, and you're basically skipping across the top like a rock. You're not. You know, I think a lot of people in business feel like they've got to be a part of Facebook, and there's just tons and tons of uh, uh, courses on how to be a social media maven and how to get engagement. And, you know, I've taught some of those courses. <laughs> if people want to <laughs> learn that, that's great. But I think people really go so far down that rabbit hole that they, they don't realize there's people like you who look at it and go, it's almost like uh, in the movie The Matrix, how they're viewing um, everything from a computer monitor, it's just a bunch of green drips down the screen, and they can see what's going on in there, but they're not partaking in it until they zoom into it with the thing in the back of their head, and they actually get into the program. They just observe it from the outside and recognize its values and its dangers and everything from afar, like you did. And then you still used it, but you used it like skipping a rock across the pond across the top of the water while everybody else is just swimming and muddling through it. And all the people in business that are swimming across that pond are the ones that are convinced that their business is going to be a success only if they bring their customers and their fans and everything in one at a time, one witty little post and one cat picture and everything else at a time. That's how they're going to build their big business. And far be it from us to, you know, argue with that because those guys work their butts off for a couple of years and then they get these big audiences it's too late to go back in time and tell them you didn't have to work that hard to do that but now that they're there i will i'll stand on their stage i'll help them out and i'll get in front of their people right the heck now and that's what we teach people all the time and i think you're a natural you just seem to be a real natural at that kind of thing because every time you say something new it's like geez you just you just understand intrinsically what leverage is and how to use it and how to get where you want to go without having ever read a book that hasn't even been published yet. Not that I invented <laughs> leverage or anything, but that's, well, that's right, pretty cool. Right. I'm, I'm looking forward to that book now. Uh, but, like, <laughs> as far as the leverage thing, and, and you talked about somebody working real hard and putting a lot of time in it to get it done, and the truth of the matter is I got good results out of, out of Facebook, not by putting in a bunch of time. I did have to put in some time. But I put in some money, not a lot of money. I bought back my time. Um, and that yeah. is one of the central themes of the, I'm presenting a paper at a philosophy conference on Friday. And one of the central themes of it is the idea that all things are exchangeable. The name of the paper is actually The Commerce of Everything. And the, the proposition I put forth is that there is this thing called wealth. And wealth is not just money or currency, or property. Wealth is the combined sum value of a human being. His time, his time remaining, the time he can spend, 
the money he has, the individual resources, the connections he has, relationships, property, um, every, everything that a man can control, that a person can direct to one mean or another, to one end or another, is exchangeable for something else. There's, there's nothing that I can accomplish by spending my time that I cannot pay someone else to spend the time on, and vice versa. There's, you know, I, there's no remodel project on my home that I can't hire somebody to do, or I can keep my money and I can do it myself, but then I spend my time. So all of that is exchangeable, and it's a, it's a problem of our society now. And this is worldwide. This isn't just American culture that people don't understand what money is. They live and operate on this assumption that currency, dollar bills or yen or whatever, the currency is money, that, that that's the only actual wealth that a person can acquire and, uh, and utilize. But that is such a small slice of the total picture. It's, it's yeah. really a philosophical failing of our education. Um, but once a person understands that they can trade all of their resources for any other resource on sort of a cosmic stock exchange, that that is a powerful, powerful understanding. Oh, yeah. Well, just think, and, and it's not an either-or situation. You can pay someone to remodel your house or you can do it yourself. Yes, those are two options, but not the only two. Because Correct. of what you just said, you can trade commodities that don't have to exchange currency you can, uh, you know, you can help the person who's going to remodel your house in a lot of different ways, in a way that is very valuable to them, to where they're like, you pay for the materials and maybe my gas, and then the rest of it will just do it this way, which is kind of like a joint venture. You can do right. all kinds of things, and looking at it that way, really doesn't it change the way you look at the entire world? Doesn't it? It materially, for me, changed everything. Just everything, the way you look at everything, the way any kind of a deal could be done, when people are charging for something, and you go, man, I'd really like to have that, but I want their premium service, and actually I want a little bit more than that, so I'm just going to make a deal with this guy and, and talk to them and be of service to them and see if something that I've got we can exchange and not have to spend any money at all and get a better product than what he's even advertising on his website. Yeah, a great example, um, just – a couple of weeks ago, I went to get my oil changed. One of my mechanics, we were chewing the fat while, uh, while they were working, and he was telling me about this guy that he and I both know, a dump truck driver. He was telling me, yeah, we did a, we did a deal a couple of weeks ago. He needed the hydraulics on his dump truck fixed. So I did that for him, and he brought me, uh, he brought me 35 yards of asphalt to repave my driveway. Genius. And that's exactly the kind yeah. of thing, trading commodities yeah. that aren't, you know, it's not just money. Well, and it doesn't it make us less reliant on conventional wisdom? Like, the, 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 the people that are ready to get ripped off the most readily, the most easily ripped off are the ones who come into, like, business. Uh, they're going to do something, they got a website, and they start doing all of the conventional searches on Google. Who can help me with this? What kind of hosting should I get? Well, of course, all the hosting companies are going to be there in their ads, and they're going to follow them all over the Internet until they choose one of them. And then somebody's going to sell them a guide, their first guide on how to, how to get more attention on Facebook or something like that. 
And that is the traditional tried and true path. But people who think like you do don't necessarily see that path in the same way. It doesn't mean that you don't buy a guide once in a while or, you know, but you've got other options where other people just see, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to spend this money over here and I'm going to have to do this. And it's almost conventional how people come in and treat it. When they come in and, and become clients of ours, they always have to tell us the story of how they got there. And the story is really hardly ever different. I spent a bunch of money and, and, and I wasted time on this. And it, it just goes right down. And we let them, you know, it's kind of a cathartic thing when they start working with us. It's, it's time for them to get it out. Okay, put, their, put your arm around them and pat them on the back and go, it's, at least it's not <laughs> going to be like that from this day forward. At least you've got that. Right. But it, it is kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's surprising that I don't even know where to begin with uh, with dissecting it honestly, and that's that's part of the reason I'm working on um, that paper, the commerce of everything, is <clears throat> there's some point in in our popular education that we're we have done a terrible disservice. Uh, my my generation and the generation before it has done a terrible disservice to the generations that follow us. Um, by allowing this this education that's available to become as I, wanna, I guess I want to say rigid as it has become um, rigid and uninspired, and I it, it's something that plagues me to think about, and I, I think about it often and try to solve it because I do have small children who need an education, and they're going to get one, whatever I have to do to make that happen. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I almost fell into the get-off-my-lawn old man sitting on the porch syndrome when I started reading about, uh, you know, millennials. And it's so funny because I remember, and you remember, when we were growing up, all the older people were making fun of us because of our long hair or our rock and roll or whatever the heck it was we did in our generation to show the previous generation, you know, that we are our own people. Every generation does it, and I almost got wrapped up into that whole thing that I said I would never, ever do. I'm going to be the coolest old guy in the world, I would tell myself when I was younger, and I'm never going to treat kids like <laughs> they're treating me right now. But I almost fell into that where it was, hey, you're supposed to be going to college right now. I, would have, I found that I had all of these pre-written responses and rules and things that were – they tried to hammer into my head, and I guess they were successful because I turned around and I almost started acting toward the next generation the way people were always acting toward me. And I say that to say this. The millennials are not satisfied with the rules that we made. They're not happy with it. Your kids won't be happy with it. My kid's not happy with it. He's not going to be happy with it. When he runs into those things, and they're actively – they're watching how p companies like Google operate and, and how um, – you know, we all, if we went to, uh, or our parents mainly, uh, when we went to work, we'd dress up in a tie and, and, you know, all that. There was dress codes and everything else, and there's rigidity everywhere. Just everything, just rigid, rigid, rigid. And, of course, we started to completely rebel against that, and that's probably why punk rock came out and everything else. But, you know, I like the way that they're questioning everything. And a lot of people would look at them like I almost did and say, you little good-for-nothings, we worked our butts off. To give you a, a, and then I started thinking, to give you what? What did we give you besides <laughs> a bunch of, you know, 
I just like that they seem like leveragists already. They're they're trying to figure out how and they're doing a good job of it, how to work from home when they need to, when they have uh brand new babies and, and have jobs that are flexible enough to do that. And they kinda all went on strike as a country full of people the same general age group and the same general ideas to where companies realize that without unions or anything, they still realize we're going to have to be a lot more flexible on jobs if we're going to ever get the kind of talent we want because none of these guys will come and work for us and stay. As soon as we do the rigid old rules, they leave. They don't like it. And I'm like, there's something admirable in that. That's not actually to be um, you know, held in contempt in my mind because what did we do that was so good that we want them to follow the same path anyway? To my mind, not very much. Yeah, and I've got to agree with you on that too. Um, but I do think that part of what we, part of where uh, they've really suffered, um, as far as the legacy that's been left to them, is you know the generation before mine. I'm, I'm a young guy. You, 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 if you ever get to meet me, I'm. I look, I look older than I am because I'm, I'm a big fat guy with a big gray beard, but I'm actually 34. I've just been around a little too much. Um, but <laughs> I think one of the things that we have robbed the later, the latter generations of is the idea of a pension. And I'm not even necessarily saying that, that it's a great thing to stick around and work for a single company forever and ever, but it, it used to be that you would start working at, General Motors or or Ford or uh, such and such a hospital or whatever organization, and the plan was to work for 25 or 30 years for one company and then have a pension that would be adequate yeah. for you to live on for the rest of your life, assuming that you, saw, you know, cross all your T's, dot all your I's, and did everything exactly the way the American dream is supposed to go. You know, you got your your wife and your three points, your 2.5 kids and your 1.5 cars and your white picket fence, and that's all paid for when you retire. So your stipend is enough, but we've done away with the pension. So being that there's no long-term benefit to working for the same company forever and ever anymore, um, that is that means that competition in the workforce has to has to radically be redefined. It, it's not enough that you pay somebody more; they have to be happy and. They have to be. They have to have that liberty. They have to have that freedom of movement, or you're not going to keep them around. Yep. Unless it's kind of ironic because that really somebody can't... little enough. Unless you pay somebody little enough that it that it basically traps them and makes it implausible for them to try and move on. Um, many people are trapped in low wage jobs because they're terrified of the prospect of moving forward. Right. Yeah, it's kind of funny uh, or sad that the same thing that broke the trust with the public in, in the corporate worlds, going back on the, you know, breaking the trust, really, saying pensions is not something you can count on, and once that Pandora's box is open, it's never going to be shut again. We'll never go back right. to that golden era where there was that trust. Once it's broken, and it only had to be done once in a very grand fashion, I might add, but probably didn't have to be at that level for everybody to know that, okay, everything has changed. So everybody's doing things differently, and it's this real, you know, it almost made getting into the Internet stuff a little bit easier because you knew everybody had lived under those rules. At least we were coming off of that high of when the Internet really started cranking up in the early 2000s, 
you know, everybody was still coming off of that. And it was like, all right, I know how people think because the world generally thinks the same way about certain issues like work and wanting to get out of cubicles, so come do something on the Internet and all that kind of stuff. And nowadays it's really weird. It's kind of a lost feeling. You've got to get into discussions and you've got to network with people to really find out within that network. And then you can only be sure within that network 100% because you heard it how people feel about a certain thing. And then you can serve them. You can market to them. You can whatever. But go outside that group, and it's a crapshoot until you know you don't know anymore because uh, everything is just is mobile literally and figuratively. Everything is a moving target now, which makes it kind of exciting. But it, it also can seem really scary for somebody starting something and wanting to get attention and looking at the Internet and the world at large the way it is now as opposed to, you know, the world we old folk grew up in um, and our parents told us about and all of that, it's, uh, it could be kind of scary. Why doesn't it scare you? Well, I did something crazy when I was a kid that, that scared all the scary out of me. I picked up, uh, I was living in Conyers, Georgia. Um, what was I about? It was right after I turned I turned twenty one. I had this uh, I had this little townhouse over in Old Town Conyers. And when nine eleven hit, there was there was a big scare right after that, and real estate got real tricky, and my business dried up pretty fast. Um, so, on the very very short term, I actually moved back in with my folks for a minute, got a little job at a, a pizza hut. It was close enough to their house that I could walk to it. Stacked up some money in the bank, not a lot of money, just just a couple of thousand dollars. And then a very good friend of mine and I, we one day we drove out to Savannah, Georgia, and got a got ourselves one of those extended stay hotel rooms, and started looking for a job. And we, we both had electrical experience. We we started building paper mills and oil refineries on the river in Savannah. Um, but that was very much just we just jumped out and. With, with nothing to our names, just jumped out and ran ran with it and built a new life from the ground up. Um, after about three or four months of doing that, we we bought a little, well, a little. We bought a pretty large house in downtown Savannah and moved uh, my buddy Steve's wife and kids out there and uh, two other adults that were good friends of ours. We had ourselves a little commune, <laughs> and but it was great because everybody in the little commune had had their own job, so. You know, it's 2001 to early 2002, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm 21, 22 years old, and I'm out on my own, but I'm only paying $120 a month in rent and $120 toward the communal, not even, I think $100 toward the communal grocery pot and, you know, $50 toward the communal communication bill and, and the utilities and whatnot. It was it was a great way to kick it off and get started, um, and having had that experience as a young man, and then basically doing something similar right after I got out of the army, but with a wife and two kids this time, um, I knew this is something I can do. I can I can start with absolute oh nothing and build a world. It's and it's it's something that's not difficult to do. But having not had the experience of doing it, it's terrifying to contemplate. Yeah. 
I think that's that's what a lot of uh, people have nowadays. Is um, it, it was a little easier on some people that came after you because the world was a lot more like that for them. They had a lot more examples like you uh, to to go. Okay, this is okay. What he did was okay. That you know what Gramps told me about his gold watch after working 19 years for GE isn't the only way. In fact, that way seems like it's not the most common now. That there's another way that things can be done, and it's all right to be on your own and to be entrepreneurial and and uh, think differently. So it's because of people like you that people today can feel that way and do really, really cool things. And practically anything can blow up now. We, we were so restricted before. Nowadays, even on the Internet in the first 10 or 15 years, we were pretty restricted. Banks weren't were, had the same attitude toward Internet businesses that they have toward pot dispensaries today. They didn't want us on their accounts, it was really hard to do business. They wouldn't work with us. And then all of a sudden, little things like PayPal started showing up. And, uh, you know, we could take – we didn't have to take checks over the Internet, which is how it started, right? And it was, right. it's crazy. But I think, I think it's a really explosive – it's just people have to understand that uh, they have to be looking for opportunities. They have to be looking for leverage points. And wherever you see a rule, I'll show you 20 people who are breaking it. Yep. So what is your sphere of influence on the web right now? Where do you want people to go to get to know you better? Uh, where do you hang out? Give out the URL there. Well, uh, I think the best URL right now, since it's not uh, healthcare season, would be ironoakgrove.com. Um, it's, I, I hate to admit, but right now the website is, is not as developed as I'd like it to be, but... Uh, it contains links to some of my products, but more importantly, it contains a description of our vision and the idea of, of dropping that acorn and growing it into a forest. Um, so, yeah, the Iron Oak, sorry, ironoakgrove.com. No indefinite article there. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming and talking to us today. Uh, that's This has been a, a great discussion. Very unusual how everything matched up. You were our perfect guest today over anybody else that could have come in. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, well, Chris. Thanks for great having me. Great to meet I'll talk you. to you all soon, I hope. Good job, guys. And we'll be back same time, same place for another episode of Traffic Masters. Have a great week, everybody. Join us Tuesday at noon Eastern for the next episode of Traffic Masters, from traffic to conversion to business success.